This is Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Native American musicians were increasingly joining the soundtrack of our lives in the 1970s. Our voices, both politically and in popular culture, were getting louder and more insistent. We were growing beyond stereotypes and taking hold of self-determination. There's still a long way to go, but the 70s proved to be a pivotal decade, laying the foundation for sovereignty, cultural connections, and Redbone. We'll highlight some of the major advances and setbacks of the 1970s as our look through the decades continues, right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Young people on the Colville Reservation are working on a project to revegetate forested areas devastated by fire. Three major fires have burned on the Colville Reservation in the last seven years. Steve Jackson reports. The tribal students are partnering with the Washington State Extension Service in a unique way to spread seeds from native plants. Pinch and turn, pinch and turn until you have a bowl. You're going to take a pinch of potting soil, just a pinch, you don't need much. This is just going to give a little bit of nourishment to the seeds while they grow. That's from an instructional video showing how to make seed bombs. Not really bombs in the traditional sense. They're actually a mix of clay, soil, and native plants, says Linda McLean from WSU Colville Reservation Extension. These seeds lie in wait for the water to, to you know, sprout them and then they'll grow, and then they'll get reestablished and develop a diverse plant life area in the burn area. So we want more plants to help control for erosion, help to build the soil profile back up. McLean says the native plants will also attract pollinating insects into the burned areas. More than 500 students have been involved in the project, making the seed bombs, and more recently going out into the areas devastated by fires to distribute them. Field trips are planned for next spring for the students to see firsthand the results of their efforts. For National Native News, I'm Steve Jackson reporting from Spokane. The U.S. Senate Committee on Indian Affairs is holding a business meeting Wednesday to consider President Joe Biden's nominee to serve as director of the Indian Health Service. Rosalind So, a citizen of the Navajo Nation, was nominated in March. She's currently the director of the Navajo Area IHS and has nearly four decades of service to IHS. During her confirmation hearing in the committee in May, she vowed to work to improve the physical, mental, social, and spiritual health and well-being of American Indians and Alaska Natives. So told senators that working with tribes and other partners is key in providing care, which was seen during the height of the pandemic. Throughout my career at Indian Health Service, I have worked to improve the agency to better meet the needs of the people we serve. This was most evident throughout the pandemic where I saw and was part of a true partnership with the Navajo Nation, the San Juan Paiute tribes, the local, state, federal, and private partners to collectively combat COVID-19. The top leader of the Navajo Nation gave his approval during the confirmation hearing. President Jonathan Nez praised So's decades-long work in public health and helping the Navajo Nation respond to the pandemic. It is because of her extensive experience working f- with federal and tribal governments that we are confident that she will continue to promote federal trust responsibilities and enhance our nation-to-nation relationship to improve the Indian health ser- care service delivery throughout Indian country. 
If confirmed, so says she'll strengthen and streamline IHS business operations, develop systems to improve accountability, transparency, and patient safety, and address workforce needs and challenges. The IHS delivers health care to more than 2 million American Indians and Alaska Natives. The agency has been without a director since January 2021, when Rear Admiral Michael Wiaki was asked to resign as the incoming presidential administration took office. Osage News reports one of the last Osage Nation full-bloods has died. Elda June Morrill McNeil passed away on Monday at 88 years old. She was an accomplished piano player and lived all over the U.S. with her military spouse until settling in Oklahoma. She'll be buried next to her husband in Fort Gibson. There are now reportedly six remaining Osage full-bloods. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. The 1970s was a tumultuous decade with a surge of Native activism. It was also a period when Native Americans saw an expansion of treaty recognition, religious freedoms, and improved mainstream representation. The occupation of Alcatraz rippled on into the 70s, and the American Indian Movement found its voice. The decade came to a close with passage of the Indian Child Welfare Act, which has still been under fire ever since. In the pop culture world, Chief Dan George was nominated for an Oscar for Little Big Man. Sasheen Littlefeather created a stir at the Academy Awards ceremony by refusing Marlon Brando's Oscar. And the band Redbone saw success with their top five single, Come and Get Your Love. This is the second in our Through the Decade series, and we want to hear from you. Tell us about your experience in the 1970s. Join our conversation, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. The 70s, they were a hugely prolific decade for Native Americans, and we've got a lot to talk about. Let's get started. Joining us now from Richmond, Virginia, is Dr. David Wilkins. He is a professor at the University of Richmond. He is Lumbee. David, welcome back to our show. Thank you very much. If there's one thing that stands out from the 1970s, it's the Self-Determination Act that was championed by President Richard Nixon. We also have to remember the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act from about the same time. David, what was happening then that made these two things possible? Do they share any common ground? Yeah, the 70s really were a, a unique decade uh, in the 20th century. Um, previous decades um, were filled with many more darker developments for Native peoples than positive developments. But by the 1960s, with the activism that um, 
Billy Frank and, and, and Hank Adams and others uh, ushered in with fighting for their fishing rights, their treaty rights in Washington State, um, the developments on, on land claims uh, led by, you know, Mad Bear, Anderson, uh, Tuscarora, um, the activities in my own tribe and with the Lumbees, North Carolina, fighting and, and rousting the KKK. Uh, you had activism that was beginning to brew in the 1960s with indigenous peoples deciding they had had enough. Um, and then with Alcatraz, when that erupted uh, in, in 1969, the last major uh, uh, development of, of, of that year, that really inspired a generation of Native, uh, Native folks uh, across the country. Uh, and that led into and, and pushed into the 1970s. And that forced Congress to respond. That forced the federal courts to respond. That forced the executive branch to respond. And you had a slew of legislation and Supreme Court decisions and executive actions that began finally to acknowledge indigenous sovereignty, uh, the return of some native lands, uh, support for Indian education and other developments. As, along with the, the, the arrival of native attorneys, um, many of whom began their career at the University of New Mexico in a program that Sam DeLoria took over in 1971. So it was a combination of both internal and external pressure that fueled the developments that began to lead to real uh, improvements for us. David, in the legal sphere, the Bolt decision was a major step for fishing rights. How much did that decision shape what came after? That was a huge decision because even though it was tailored to the Native folks in Washington State, the 1854 and 1855 treaties, their idea of treaties themselves are a concept and a, a legal and political reality that indigenous peoples around the country uh, were able to connect to. Uh, and so the, the activities and the fissions that led to the Bolt decision that was affirmed by the Supreme Court the following year then helped to fuel the, fish, the fishing rights struggles of the tribes in the Great Lakes area as well. Um, and so indigenous peoples around the country, even tribes like my own that never signed a treaty, began to understand the importance of treaties as establishing uh, you know, a true government-to-government -government relationship between our nation and, and the federal government. Uh, so it was a huge development. Now, Red Power, the American Indian Movement, they became very visible during the 1970s with the occupation of Alcatraz, Mount Rushmore, Wounded Knee, the BIA building, and then, of course, the Trail of Broken Treaties. David, was this a, sig a signal of increasing power or frustration over Native voices that just weren't being heard at the time? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that the, the role that Hank Adams played in, in, in much of these developments, beginning in 1969, continuing through the Trail of Broken Treaties when they gathered together on their march across the country in Minneapolis, where they forged the 20-point uh, proposal that Hank uh, Adams was largely responsible for coalescing into those very discreet 20 points that were so tightly woven and interrelated. That was a, a galvanizing moment. And then, of course, you had the takeover of the Bureau of Indian Affairs in the following year, uh, the Wounded Knee takeover, and so it was a profound uh, two-year period that really inspired, a gener you know, in the entire generation of, of Native people. I was a college freshman in 1972 and, and was unaware until the developments unfolded that year uh, of how important uh, all, this, all this was was taking place 
and it really inspired indigenous peoples around the country to step up and begin to reassert their rights uh, on every sphere possible. Now, in the world of literature, Vine Deloria's Custer Died for Your Sins, it was published in 1969. What did that book mean for Native representation, and, and what did it change? Uh, that book was the, the single... I mean, there were a number of developments in the 60s that made a huge difference that got us fired up. But Custer seemed to be a particularly pivotal moment in the way that Vine wrote it, in the way that he attacked uh, certain mainstream institutions like like Christianity and the role of missionaries, the role of anthropologists, uh, and, and, uh, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And it really was another inspirational thing that, that, could, that let Native peoples know that we needed to be proud of who we were and what we were capable of doing. Uh, and that then fueled uh, other books that Vine wrote. And in fact, just for the last three days, I've been rereading God is Red, Vine's third book that comes out in 1973 that connects directly with the Trail of Broken Treaties uh, and, of course, Wounded Knee too. But it was a study encouraging indigenous people, both young and old, to take pride and, and take stock of their traditional values, their traditional religious expressions, and build upon those and let those guide us as we move forward uh, in, into, the, into the decade. Now, David, let's also talk a little bit about boarding schools during that era. There were still a lot of Native students that were going to those schools in the 1970s. What do we know about how they were being treated at that time and how the boarding schools were being operated in the 1970s? Uh, well, Indian education is not one of my one of my specialties, but I know that they were certainly still active. And certainly the boarding schools of the 1970s were, far, were much different, uh, much less oppressive, much less discriminatory than had been their predecessor institutions dating back to Carlisle in, in the 1880s into the 19-teens, 1920s, 1930s. But they were still, you know, places, institutions where there was an attempt to assimilate uh, Native youth to, to convince them that, uh, you know, they needed to learn more about the larger culture than about their own culture and so on. And so the Indian Education Act of that Congress enacted in 1972 showed Congress finally recognizing that Native people understood education themselves, and they had a right to begin to set the tone and establish cur- curriculum that they would want to teach their own children with. Uh, that was building upon the, uh, the novel nation when they got uh, the novel community college established in 19, 1968. Congress then responds to the development of that in 1978 by enacting the Tribally Controlled Community College Act, which inspired other tribal nations to start their own colleges. And so you had boarding schools continuing, but at the same time, because of all the positive activism, tribes were beginning to take charge of their own educational uh, curriculum and their own institutions, realizing that they needed to be the ones in charge of educating their own youth. So all falls within that aegis of, of self-determination during that era. And David, thank you for that great background, helping us set the tone here for today's show. The decade is the 1970s. And let's learn a little bit more about the American Indian Movement and what was going on during the early 1970s. And we've got just the person to help us do that. 
Dr. Lenado Warjack is joining us now from the Shoshone Bannock Reservation in Fort Hall, Idaho. Dr. Warjack is a writer, an activist, and the chair of Indians of All Tribes in San Francisco, California. She's a Shoshone Bannock. Lenada, welcome back to the show. Hello, how are you? Thank you. I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for coming on. And uh, you were there, Lenada. Let's 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 just talk about that. You were actually there on the rock, and, and there aren't a lot of folks left anymore that 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 were there at the time. Why did you feel you needed to be there at Alcatraz at that time during the occupation? Wasn't. Uh... Well, I'm not a part of the American Indian movement, and that's kind of something that everyone gets misunderstands. We were students uh, throughout the University of California system and throughout California, Native American students, when we took Alcatraz. And it wasn't that I was compelled to be out there. I actually had to instigate the whole thing because we were working with another student group, San Francisco State, Richard Oaks, and it, he actually uh, gave us all up when we spent our first night on Alcatraz and read his declaration, and I guess he thought we were done, and so I made the move so that we could all go back, and that began our 19-month occupation, but of course, all the men get the recognition, and it's not that I'm trying to get recognition. It's just the fact that I had to do it. Lenita, we're going to talk more about your time there at Alcatraz and just other events that, that paralleled that period of occupation. You were a student there in California at the time. Lots to talk about, lots to think about, 1970s. Give us a call if you've got a question, if you've got a comment for today's show, 1-800-996-2848. For decades, thousands of indigenous Canadian children were victims of a discriminatory child welfare system. Now the Canadian government aims to compensate those children and their families and reform the federal system with a record $20 billion settlement. We'll find out how it came about and what it might accomplish on the next Native America Calling. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, StrongHeart's Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by StrongHeart's Native Helpline. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're discussing some pivotal moments of the 1970s that continue to shape the present for Native people. The era of self-determination was gathering steam. There were reforms for Native education and monumental treaty rights decisions. If there are moments from the 70s you remember or you'd like to comment on, then please join the conversation, 1-800-996-2848. A few interesting factoids from 1970, the year that kicked off the decade. The Blue Lake and 48,000 acres of land were returned to the Taos Pueblo by an act of Congress. The National Indian Education Association was founded in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The Native American Rights Fund, NARF, 
founded in Boulder, Colorado. And Sonny Sixkiller, a Cherokee, becomes a starting quarterback for the University of Washington. He led the Huskies for three seasons, setting 15 school records and making the cover of Sports Illustrated. Now let's go back to our guest, Dr. Lenata Warjack. Lenata, tell us more about the efforts of Native women such as yourself and others during the occupation of Alcatraz. Okay, it was a... I didn't realize we were living the effects of a patriarchy because I wasn't raised that way. I was just uh, doing what I thought needed to be done. My father was a tribal chairman, and, of course, on the reservation, we were fighting the Indian Claims Act. And, of course... uh, Public Law 280 and House Concurrent Resolution 106 uh, from the termination era. So I knew about all that before I went to California. And then I um, became the first Native American student at the University of California. Got involved uh, by recruiting more students on campus. And we went on strike for Native American studies through ethnic studies. We initiated the first ethnic studies, Native American studies department in the nation from UC Berkeley. And that same year, we went on to take Alcatraz so to protest the broken treaties. So it was a pretty active time. And uh, like I said, I, I didn't realize <laughs> the patriarchy we were living under, I just went ahead full steam and did what I thought was necessary to do and I didn't pay too much attention to that. But I did notice, you know, how people reacted and especially among our own Native people too. It was like the men were really uh, not supportive of Indian women at that time. But I just, I just thought it was their problem. I didn't really, I just kept going. And from there, of course, a lot of things happened uh, within that decade. And you've mentioned a few of them. And I did know that you wanted to uh, wanted uh, to know about the four major events that I thought was important. I did become uh, a member of the steering committee of the Native American Rights Fund in. 1970, and uh, we went ahead and litigated the fishing rights case and was able to get that bolt, first bolt decision, and then on to the Supreme Court in 79 where, where it was upheld. So that was really an important one for fishing rights and treaty rights. But also, um, there was a lot of funding that came into the BIA and IHS through Nixon. Nixon was was very supportive, and he did his uh, message to his special message to Congress on Native people, and he uh, got rid of the uh, the Termination Act, Public Law 280. And you know, I've been doing my research trying to find out what specifically he did. It wasn't just through that message, but. I noticed a lot of the uh, attorneys and writers and researchers never say specifically what he did. I always thought it was an executive order, but uh, where he uh, pulled his, uh, well, took away uh, Public Law 280 so that we could start on our own as sovereign nations. Okay. So Nixon a lot. 
Right, right, yeah, highly prolific, and a president that has uh, is, is had such a, a sordid history uh, by many historians, but to Native American people, he's definitely considered a uh, not necessarily such a polarizing figure. We've got a caller on the line right now, Anne, listening in Albuquerque on KUNM. Anne, thanks for calling in. You're most welcome. I love your show. And basically, when you talk about what happened in the 70s with the Native movement, uh, you could say that this shaped my life. I mean, I I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. It was all about activism. It was all about the civil rights movement. It was all about, um, you know, the environmental movement. And then when I saw on the news what happened at Wounded Knee, it just broke my heart. And I thought, my God, you know, and my, my uncle told me I was part Iroquois, which has never been proven, but that's okay, because I always, from the age of 14, I felt very Iroquois. And I thought, you know what, I have to be a voice for um, for what's happening in this country right now. I mean, the 70s were, the 70s, I think, were a critical decade, because there were so many movements, there was so much speaking out against injustice. And all of that pretty much describes me. When I was in high school, um, I took a number of classes in Native Studies. I mean, all of the Americas. And I was it was eye-opening to learn just how horrific um, the people who were here for hundreds of years, maybe thousands, were treated by colonizers. And I more and more extricated myself from that. I was, I was born into the Mormon, Mormon Church. I was Roman Catholic for 41 years. For 61 years of my life, I was white Christian. I'm done with all of it. Now I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> to make a long story short, okay, okay. you know, that shaped me. <laughs> and thank you for that call, giving us all that background. And I'm glad to hear you are a show, a fan of Native America Calling. We've got another caller in Albuquerque, in fact. Marion also listening on KUNM. Marion, you're on the air. Marion, are you there? Looks like we lost Marion there. Lynetta, let's talk a little bit more uh, about uh, Native activism during that era that you were at Alcatraz. And and how did it change? You know, we did a show last week about the 60s, and we talked a little bit about the early years of the Red Power Movement and the National Indian Youth Councils. But boy, in the 70s, it just really took off. And and what was that change? What what created more of that? Uh, I guess you would brand it more of a, of a militant, more of a, a no compromise, winner take all. We're not we're not taking no for an answer approach to native activism during that era that, that you were a part of. Okay. Well, first of all, we were nonviolent, and when we established. Uh, Ethnic studies, Native American studies, we were nonviolent. When we took Alcatraz, we were nonviolent. And the men were pretty well upset about that because they wanted to to get violent, which was something that we were told not to do to, you know, as Native people, we're nonviolent. We're the people of peace, not the people of violence. But men were so upset. You couldn't stop them. They went on ahead, and I had uh, so I separated myself from from the American Indian movement because I know that my teachings was to stay nonviolent, and it did get violent. And uh, unfortunately, we lost some people as a result, but we were losing people anyway. 
and it it was uh, really horrible what was happening in the Dakotas and the actions that were taken. And of course, the government uh, they were supporting the the tribe uh, in South Dakota, and that was probably a, a big part of the problem was that there were no civil liberties. If you're going to live under a democracy which the uh, tribal governments were at that time, well, still are, then there has to be an enforcement of, uh, of, of the laws, and the government would not take the trust responsibility to enforce it as specified under the tribal constitutions. So if, if there is no enforcement of law within a tribe, Mm-hmm. then it's it's not a democracy. And unfortunately, we're still that way to this very day. We've never had any enforcement of, of civil liberties because of that Martinez case in 1978, which they claim, uh, you know, because they, uh, with the, the 1968 Civil Rights Act, took them 10 years to get to the Supreme Court to enforce civil liberties for individuals on the reservation mm-hmm. and... Uh, it was lost, and of course they said it was you have your tribal sovereignty. Well, that's not really tribal sovereignty. We already gained that with with Nixon and the action that he took to to take the state's uh, jurisdiction away from them that they were imposing on the tribes, and we lost about 106 tribes right. at that. Right, right, okay. So, and Lenita, you've just uh, you know one thing that's really coming across from from what you're sharing and 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 the role of women there at Alcatraz and other parts of Native activism at the time is there was definitely some disagreement regarding whether or not the approach should be more militant as opposed to non-militant, and that's something that that I think a lot of our listeners um, are probably really really interested in hearing more about and, and learning more about. And uh, let's do that by talking about a movie that I think we're all familiar with during that during that decade. The movie is, of course, Billy Jack, and it's uh, just a huge movie for anybody who is native. And what's interesting about that movie, it's often thought of as kind of a militant movie, but there's also another character in that movie that is pushing for a nonviolent, non-militant approach, and, and the two characters clash at times. So let's talk a little bit more about Billy Jack, that iconic film from the 70s, and we've got the person to do that on our show. You've heard his voice here many times on Native America Calling, Vincent Schilling. He's speaking with us from New York. He's the editor of NativeViewpoint.com and a certified Rotten Tomatoes critic. He is Aquasasni Mohawk. Vince, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me. You bet. So the movie Billy Jack, Vince, do you remember the first time you watched it? I'm literally recovering from COVID. <laughs> oh, geez. Are you okay? Can you can you talk with us today? Yeah, I'm okay. And okay. today is my, my wife and I's 25th wedding anniversary, so I do want to say happy anniversary to my Dolores. Congratulations to you and Dolores, and boy, I sure hope you have a speedy recovery with COVID. I know know what an ordeal that can be. Um, well, Billy Jack, I mean, it was a low-budget movie. It was a kind of an indie flick for its era. It became massively popular. Why was that? What is it, 72? You know, I, don't, I don't remember. But, but I'll, I'll, what I do know is I have rewatched that scene where he says, "You know, I'm going to take this." Foot wait, wait, hold, hold on, Vince, right hold on, hold here. on, Vince, hold on. I'm sorry. 
Let's let's talk more. <laughs> let's listen to that. Okay, the original. Okay. I'm going I'm to set this up here. The original film, Billy Jack, was a major hit after it was released in 1971. Tom Laughlin wrote, produced, starred in, and distributed the film that was the inspiration for three three sequels. Tom Laughlin was not native, but his character was a mixed race Navajo Vietnam veteran and a martial arts expert. Here is one of the more memorable scenes from the first Billy Jack movie. You know what I think I'm going to do then? Just for the hell of it. Tell me. I'm going to take this right foot. And I'm going to whop you on that side of your face. And you want to know something? There's not a damn thing you're going to be able to do about it. Really? Really? Boy, that sounds like one heck of a 1970s style beat down there, Vince. That's the scene you're talking about, I think. That is the scene. Yeah, good, good job on cutting me off on that because that, that would have been perfect. Because that's exactly the scene my wife and I literally have watched probably a thousand times. I just love when he goes, "Really." <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom Laughlin, he wasn't native, but so many native people love that character. I think he has a special place in native people's heart for how he portrayed native life. Um, but again, I mean, here we're, we're listening to to Lenata talk about what 70s activism was really like. And then we hear here we have this fictional portrayal in the movie Billy Jack. Do you think it was accurate or, of what was happening during the time? Well, you know, I mean, if you look at me, I, my age, I, I I was wearing Hulk pajamas at the time in the seventies. You know what I'm saying? I, I, mean, I mean, so for me, for me, the seventies were all about what kind of native characters were there. You know, like I didn't really have a whole lot. Uh, the you know, village people, native guy, Felipe Rose, of course, the guy who cried, the garbage, but they did have Apache chief on uh you know the uh wonder friend so that that i was always kind of excited about but um you know for me it's always been about what was going on in pop culture and to hear these you know icons on the show talking about some of this real hardcore stuff you know these are the types of people i i honor to know and felt as though in some ways i could stand on the shoulders on due to their hard work because i didn't know the stuff that was going on in the 70s like this um, not until after I became a journalist and and learning all of these things, but um, you know I was all about the cartoons and and uh, you know if I ever happened to see a native guy in a cartoon or or in a comic book or, or you know like uh, a Marvel comic or something that that was that was the change of the world for me. Yeah, it really was, and. Um... You know, I'm thinking of that commercial, and I know you've talked about it before, the, the Crying Indian commercial with Iron Eyes, Cody, and some of these other aspects from the 70s. And, I, I mean, things really started to change, though, right, in terms of, like, how we were portrayed on camera. And, and I think a lot of, like, what we see now with natives, that, and in terms of the more accurate representations, uh, we have the 70s to thank for some of that, Vince. Right. Yeah, I think pop culture emulates and and kind of follows the same train as as legislation 
to be honest with you. You know, I mean, people are held accountable on one side and they're held accountable on another. You know, if they're held accountable on the legal side of things, then you'll, what you'll find is the uh, film industry starts get, getting held accountable. And sometimes it's one over the other or one's first and the next follows up. But, uh, you know, it's, it's all about graduating from a outdated term into a new updated term and continuing and continuing and continuing to do that until things, you know, go for the better. I mean, look at the, the Godfather, you know, what happened there. Mm-hmm. Well, we've got some more interesting factoids from the 70s. In 1971, the Association of American Indian Physicians was founded in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. In 1973, OU, University of Oklahoma at Norman, drops the little red mascot of its sports teams. And in 1975, Muskogee actor Will Sampson delivered an iconic performance as Chief Bromden in the Academy Award-winning film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Samson, also an accomplished painter and rodeo performer, would go on to appear in numerous movies and television shows throughout the rest of the decade and into the 1980s. You're listening to Native America Calling. We'll be right back. For almost 50 years, the Indian Loan Guarantee and Insurance Program has been helping lenders give loans to Indian country businesses for development and construction projects. Do you have a business idea to improve your tribal economy? Need startup costs, working capital, new equipment, or refinancing? The time is right for Indian country investments. Information at bia.gov slash dci, which supports this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. What do you remember about the 70s that made a difference for Native people, good or bad? Join our conversation. Call us at 1-800-996-2848, 1-800-996-2848. And let's go to the phones again. We have Marion back listening in Albuquerque on KUNM. Marion, are you there? Good morning. I just wanted to thank all the people that were instrumental in influencing me in the 60s of IAIA and the 70s. It has given me a lot of um, positive influence. I am so proud to be Native American. I always have been. I know people that knew me when I was in elementary school, junior high and high school probably remember me that way. And I'm still that way. And it has influenced me to the point where I'm still working on trying to open a new domestic violence shelter for Native American families in Albuquerque. And the volunteers that helped me were still afraid. We still walk with the idea that there is racism and that we pray all the time. We believe in Mother Earth and Father Sky, and that's how I walk. And sometimes I have to get a little loud. Mm -hmm. And um, I think of the people in AIM that died, that were killed, and that spurs me on. So I'm really grateful for the influence of the people that were not afraid back then and did what they did, said what they said, and encouraged people like me to continue no matter what. 
Marion, thank you for those words. I, I think we all need to hear those words, and, and we all do definitely owe uh, appreciation and gratitude for those folks during the 1970s that took those chances. And best of luck with that DV shelter that you mentioned. We've got another caller on now, Gordon, listening in Red Lake, Minnesota, on KOJB. Gordon, you've been waiting a long time. Appreciate your patience. You're on the air. All right. Well, thank you for having me on. Uh, I, uh, I'm uh an alumni of IAIA also, and the in the 70s, we got recognized as real fine artists instead of just uh, crafts people who make baskets and do beadwork. Because of that school, uh, we would have big art galleries. Ooh, Gordon, I think you would. Here. Are you there, Gordon? Oh, we lost Gordon there. Well, Gordon, uh, sorry about that. Maybe we can get you back here in a little while. We've got one more guest on our show, and I'll tell you what, folks, he is a good one. Joining us now from California is Pat Vegas. He's a singer, a songwriter, producer, and bass player for You Know Who, the band Redbone. He's Mexican, a Yaqui, and Shoshone descent. Pat, welcome back to our show today. Thank you so much, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you, brother, for coming on the air today. Redbone, I mean, you you are the sound, the sound, the native sound of the 70s. Come and get your love. It's so good. People are still putting it in their playlist. 50 years later, you hear it on TV and commercials. Do you have a gauge? I mean, why is it that that song just continues to resonate so well with people across all, all ethnicities? It's not just native. Everybody loves that song, Pat. What is it? It's the love in the song, you know. That's that's what it is. It, it's you know we didn't come on with a, a, a negative attitude, you know. It was all positive, you know, and that's what people appreciated, especially in the times that we were in, which were so uh, hostile and, and, and with the surrounding uh, attitude, you know. We came on with love, you know, and and and, and it just blew everybody's mind. And I and I think that's what it was, was the love. You came out with love. That that is for sure. <laughs> no question about that. And and Pat, you co-wrote that song. How did you come up with that great intro hook? Well, it was one of those things when my brother had a song called "I Want to Give You My Love," and I and I, and I started to play it and play it, and, and and after a few minutes, I said, "No, it's come and get your love, baby." You know. <laughs> and your brother <laughs> Lolly, who was also, uh, I mean, he sang lead on that song, right? Yes, he did. Wow! I sang back. I sang background with it. You know, I did the "Come and Get Your Love, Come and Get Your Love." Uh, yeah, I mean, I've seen, I've seen you guys on YouTube. I've seen the the old, um, the Burt Sugarman, uh, the Midnight Special video of you folks performing live, and you incorporated Native regalia and dancing in your shows. Who had that idea to include those cultural elements? Well, you see, Peter, our drummer, was full blooded Shoshone. And uh, and uh, we wanted to honor him and 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 and, and, the, and our native brothers and sisters all over the world, because uh, that's what we were. We, we knew we were Native American, and that's it. You know, mm-hmm. and we we we, we said, "Damn the torpedoes! We're going to go ahead and do the thing." You know, do our thing. You know, and 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 because uh, a couple of guys were scared. You know that we had to start some stuff. You know, and uh, I said, "I don't care. Let's do it. If we're yeah. going to do it. We're going to do it right." Yeah, wow. And Redbone, you guys got a lot of mainstream attention. And did that change the kind of feedback you were getting from fans? Do you remember? I mean, you know, we're talking about 
Alcatraz. We're talking with, with Lenata. We're talking with David about some of these issues that were going on. And, and you folks were part of that, too, on the artistic side. No, it really gave us a lot more power, you know, because people really got behind us. And, 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 and uh, it was like one of those things where, where it just mushroomed, you know, got bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, we just kept riding it, kept doing it, kept doing it and and, uh, and telling the truth. You know, we spoke about the truths uh, that were going down. You know, we didn't exaggerate anything. We just told it like it was. And uh, people appreciated that honesty and that, and that truth, you know, and uh, and we were proud of it, too. Do you remember, Pat, when, when that growing awareness of, of Native arts and other issues really started to take hold? Yes, I do. I do remember it exactly. Um, uh, we, we, we had a meeting with uh, with all the guys, you know, Russell Means and all the guys that, that were there at Wounded Knee. We had a, we had a uh, meeting together. You know, we all of us met him and, and we discussed the problems that were going on and, and and what we had to do, and we went full steam ahead. We said, we, well, we got to tell it like it is, you know, mm-hmm. and tell the truth, and, 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 and we got to fight for our people, you know, got to fight for the right. Pat, one of my, my producers here on the show, he really wants me to ask you about Jesse Ed Davis, who was another prolific musician in the 1970s, a guitar player. Did you know Jesse Ed Davis? Yes, I met Jesse Ed. Uh, um, I met him at, uh, at a, a session that we were doing uh, in Hollywood. We were at one of the recording studios there, and he walks in. I just out of nowhere, just nobody knew he was coming, and he walks in, and, man, it was beautiful. We connected right away. And did you play with him that day? Oh, yeah, I made him play. <laughs> <laughs> I made him get his guitar and play. Wow. We brought his guitar in sat in with us and, and we played a bunch of songs that they recorded and uh, yeah we still got him on tape he's, he's this great guy uh, real honest real right forefront you know yeah well I know he played that iconic guitar solo on that Jackson Brown song uh, Doctor My Eyes yeah. I believe yeah that was great solo yeah mm. as a masterpiece yeah, yeah. I mean, you hear it referred to as one of like the best guitar solos in in the history of rock and roll. Uh, Pat, your kid. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Pat. It was a classic guitar solo, man. I mean, it was just precise. It was just. It came out of nowhere. Just boom. He just did his first take. It was amazing. Well, he was a, a very popular studio musician during that time. I mean, he's if if you look at a lot of old album dust jackets, I mean, he's on a lot of credits, isn't he? He, yes, he did. He was all over in Los Angeles. He was everywhere. He was, you know, he was playing on everybody's session. Everybody wanted him after that Jackson thing. But I had him before Jackson. Pat, your kids—they're musicians too, as I understand. Do you do you all ever play together as a family? Yeah, my son PJ is a, is a prolific artist. He writes beautiful music and he, he tells stories. You know, it's beautiful. And my daughter, Frankie, Francesca, also sings, and she's a good writer, great writer. Yeah, it's happening. Now, do you spend most of your time in California? Yes. And, and of course, Arizona, New Mexico, uh, all around the West Coast here. Mm. How often do you get to New Mexico? Uh, we traveled by bus. We would rent this big, big, giant bus. Uh, and 
all of us would pile in and would go touring, you know. I was in Europe for three months on my first tour there. Wow. wow. Touring around Europe. We were like, they'd never seen a Native American in, in, in places where we went in Europe. You know, and, and we, we we would go on stage and all you'd see is, all you'd hear is, people uh, uh, gasping for air and that. Uh, and they'd back off the stage about maybe three feet, and we started playing, and then they'd rush the stage. <laughs> <laughs> Pat, what, another thing that always interests me about the 70s, I can remember going back and, and looking at, like, old yearbooks uh, from my parents' generation and before, and you didn't see yeah. too many Native men with long hair up until the 1970s. No. You saw the crew cuts. You saw the old black PHS-style glasses. When when did that start? Do you remember when, when, when Native guys started growing their hair out? Uh, we, 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 we had no other choice. We, we were going to go full-blown, you know. Full. Peter had hair down to his waist, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, everybody in the band had hair down to their waist, and we were just, we were, we were for real, you know. We, we are for real, you know. And we, that's what we wanted to portray, you know, nothing phony, uh, you know, Hollywood Indian types, you know. No, no, this was for real. Mm. Well, we had the attitude, we had the, Yeah, you sure did. You sure did, Pat, and and uh, and we're all thankful for it because you sure did. Uh, you made a lot, a lot of Native people really proud, and you continue to do so. We've got a, another caller on our on our line now, David. David is, he's, we don't have David. I'm sorry. I'm getting a note from the producer. We do not have David. I'm sorry about that. Vince, um, I, I want to go back to you um, listening here to Pat talking about those glory years there with Redbone, Come and Get Your Love, some of this stuff going on in the 70s, music-wise. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Any other big musical acts in the 70s, native theme that we need to remember? The immediate thought was when uh, Guardians of the Galaxy was using his song, and I was, I got to call him up and been like, "Oh my God, you're Pat Vegas! They're using your song!" And we were just, we were just laughing because he was like, "Yeah, that's pretty good." We were just uh, both thrilled, and I was thrilled for him. I can't imagine how he felt. Uh, and but then I said, "So, so Pat?" He's like, "Yeah." I go. How much are they paying you for that? Because I can't tell you that meant it. <laughs> <laughs> Pat, I want to ask. I mean, we don't want to get into any numbers, but how often do you get approached by by people that that wanna wanna use your songs? Oh, it's often. I mean, a lot. I get calls all the time from people wanting to use, uh, use the song in different commercials, different things. And, and I'm always agreeable, you know, I mean, because uh, it, 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 it puts the word out and keeps the keeps the movement going, you know. And that's why I, I'm on, I'm behind it, a hundred percent. When did you and your brother start playing music, Pat? I don't want the movement I ever end. Now we started out when we were 14 years old, you know, because we knew if, if we were going to be uh, getting uh, challenged the music industry and get into it which there were no Native Americans in, in, at the time you know so it was so we had to be twice as good so we would rehearse 24 hours a day every day uh, and because we knew we had to be twice as good we couldn't be just good enough you know and you know we had to be better and then than that and uh, that's what it was, it was rehearsals and, and practicing all the time and 
because we didn't want to make a bad showing, you know. Mm-hmm. And it'd be at the very best. Well, it, yeah, it paid off because you, you, you guys had one heck of a sound, and it's, it's never been replicated since. And a lot of people have covered co- covered your songs over the years, too. So uh, it just continues. Your, your legacy, it just continues to grow as the years go by. Lenata, you were out there in the Bay Area during this era. Did you, uh, did you get a chance to see Redbone live? No, we didn't, but uh, we certainly heard it, and we loved it. Uh, thank you, Pat. That's really great. It was thank an awesome you. time to rock out. <laughs> and then I think there was another group called uh, Exit that we used to listen to. But it seems like in the 70s, all kinds of rock broke out in the Bay Area. And it was really, really, I was so proud that we had uh, Redbone in there. That's really awesome. Thank you. Lenita, thank you for mentioning Exit. Uh, they were led by by Tom B., another native legend in the music world. In fact, interesting little factoid, Tom B. used to run a recording studio about a mile away from our studios here in Albuquerque for Native America Calling, just down the road. He had a studio there, and his son Robbie B. helped him with that studio as well. So, yeah, we definitely got to remember Tom B. and Exit. Lenita, we were talking a little bit about Billy Jack. What do you remember about that movie, Billy Jack? Oh, I wasn't too impressed because <laughs> I knew he was a non-native, and I wanted to see a native, so I wasn't really... I mean, I was out there doing it, so I didn't need to be encouraged by any movies. Right. You were living the life, living the <laughs> living it. You didn't have to see it on the big screen. I totally, totally understand well, this has been a wonderful show today, and, and all of our guests providing all these insights, all this background on the decade, the 1970s. We're really enjoying these decade shows. We, last week we did the 60s. Next we're going to cover the 1980s. And as always, we appreciate all of you listeners joining in, giving us your comments, sharing your memories from the decades. And, and we're going to keep doing this here on Native America Calling. We're going to keep giving you the content that you folks want, and we're going to do it Native style. But we have, of course, reached the end of the hour now. So, David, Lenata, Pat, Vincent, thank you all for taking a little walk down memory lane and giving us a snapshot of 1970s Native America. Join us tomorrow as we discuss Canada's $20 billion settlement with First Nations children. I'm Sean Spruce. Thanks for listening to the one, the only Native America Calling. My name is Asad. When I was 19, my mom was diagnosed with colorectal cancer because she smoked. My tip is find things to be thankful for. I'm thankful she quit smoking. I'm thankful for the nurses who taught me how to check her IV and to manage her medication. 
And I'm thankful for every day we have together because nothing is guaranteed, especially for us. The people you love are worth quitting for. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Cachet. First baby, don't know where to start? CMS programs cover prenatal services. Enroll today. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Elahqua. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.